From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. If you're like me, there's a good chance you're still full from Thursday's Thanksgiving feast. So today on the show, I picked out some of my favorite segments to fill your mind rather than your belly. Segments about our relationship to the natural world and to each other. The holiday season is a time of hospitality. This time of year, the role of host and guest are amplified and extend beyond the act of feeding someone. So I've been thinking about my conversation with activist and essayist Priya Basel. In her book, Be My Guest, Priya explores the meaning of generosity through the lens of food and beyond. Hi, Priya. Hi, Evan. So this notion of of give and take and how hospitality um, runs into other aspects of our emotional life is really fascinating. Can we start with the word itself, its etymology, and what's wrapped up in that? I was so intrigued to find out about the roots of hospitality when I was researching for this book. So one thing is that um, the word is, it shares a root with the word hostility. They both um, come from the Indo-European word gosti, which meant host, guest and stranger simultaneously. And I thought that this kind of trio of words was so powerful and so interesting because it seems to me that those are the three roles through which we move consciously or unconsciously throughout our lives. It's really fascinating. And and also you talk about hospitality as beginning at birth where we are creatures that need everything done for us and that you talk about raising children as ultimate hospitable act and how maturity equals growing up. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, it was a sort of transition that I felt myself going through in relation to my mother. I think that the hospitality that we get from our parents, if we're lucky, is like um, no other that we experience um, in any parts of our lives. And um, as my mother gets older and um, also has has been unwell in various ways, I noticed that she couldn't take care of me in the way that I was used to whenever I went home, even as an adult. She couldn't cook the things that I wanted. There was a couple of times I went home and she hadn't made my favorite dish. And um, in those moments, I sort of experienced what it might be not to have her around anymore. And it was such an uncomfortable and such a such a sad um, realization, of course, one that's always present, but just in those particular instances, it was suddenly so vivid to me that something was changing and that this was like a very natural part of life, that we are perhaps no longer offered the care that we always expected, but that a certain care is demanded of us in turn. And so it occurred to me that this shift from uh, being a guest to being a host is one of the hallmarks of being a, of growing up and of reaching maturity to take care more than to be taken care of is there a role for the recipe itself in hospitality 
I think so. I was so intrigued um, thinking about recipes and how I described in the book as one of the like the original open source, a kind of very beautiful form of exchange um, between cultures, between people, between generations. Um, I think recipes, there's something implicitly generous in them because, of course, you can adapt them um, or remain, you know, really faithful um, because you want to recreate something very particular. Um, and the more you make a recipe, the more it becomes yours. Um, I think that's something very beautiful too, um, the way in which food allows us to get very close to something and feel like it's somehow inextricably part of you, even if it might come from a place or an origin or a person who you don't know or who is very removed from you. And so this way of collapsing distance, of collapsing difference um, that recipes afford us is, I think, one of the most precious forms of exchange that we have and have had for, for many years. And of course, ever since blogs, um, food blogs and recipes on the internet um, began to proliferate and be so easily available, I feel as though that that sense of exchange and bounty um, that's there through recipes has become even more accentuated. We, we often talk about food as this way of connecting. Does it also cause division? I remember a particular incident from my childhood um, because I grew up in an Indian community in Kenya and um, the society at that time was quite divided. Um, Kenya was part of the British Empire and it, had, it was sort of newly independent when I was born in 1977. And so as I was growing up in the 80s, the Indian community was quite segregated from the black Kenyans and um, the white community. But within the Indian community, it was very diverse. So Hindus, Sikhs, Muslims, um, we all ate together, met, and there were kind of very close friends friendships. But I noticed that um, whenever our Muslim friends came to eat at our home, they wouldn't touch the meat because it wasn't halal. And um, this really offended my father, especially. And he would just start to run and say, that's it. I'm not seeing them again and not inviting them. I'm not going there. But then a few weeks later, we would be invited and we would go there. And he would swear on the way that he wasn't going to touch the food. He wasn't going to touch the meat. But then once we were sitting at the table, he would help himself, tuck in, enjoy, have seconds, give compliments. And so there was this sense in which, you know, the food revealed the differences and sometimes even in a in a kind of uncomfortable way. And at the same time, it had this power to seduce and sort of um, make my father get over his prejudice, which he had sworn to just um, a few weeks before. So we have to talk about this phrase, and that is hospitality industry, this pretty intense oxymoron. Um, can you talk about how hospitality has become commodified? Yeah, I, it's 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 got a different resonance now as well, though, with the pandemic and this particular part of our sort of economy being so badly affected. I sort of feel like I have a different relationship to that term that I had when I, I wrote it, uh, when I wrote the book. But nevertheless, I think it still holds that this notion of hospitality, which had to do with giving without expecting anything in return, um, has now got this very strong connotation of 
paying to be served and that those who pay deserve and those who can't pay don't. When I was researching, I noticed that when you Google hospitality, you, you just end up with different links to the restaurant industry, hotels, and this whole kind of leisure industry where you pay to be served. And it seemed to me a kind of sad indictment of this beautiful notion of hospitality, which, you know, it, it ties to religion, it ties to philosophy, it ties to politics. And it's just such an such a, an all encapsulating term, which I think gives us a way to think about our relations to each other in a different way. But that this has been co-opted by this capitalist money making industry. It's interesting because as I as I read through this piece and thought about the beginning of the book and your initial musings on hospitality and maturity, I couldn't help but think of guests as bad actors, which <laughs> we hear so many stories and and I fear for for what's going to happen to those generous folks who have lost so much now that we're opening, if the guest doesn't understand that they're an implicit part of this exchange of hospitality. Yeah, I mean, that's such, an, such a good point that this notion of reciprocity within this um this um, under this umbrella of hospitality is really important that we have our roles to play and that for um, whether it's a dinner party or a meal in a restaurant for it to really be successful that we have our responsibilities I mean even if we're enjoying something and uh, or paying for something we nevertheless have a responsibility to kind of honor the other person to take care of them to be aware of their needs and so for me, this question of um, giving and giving up, host and guest and stranger, they're all related. It's like this kind of sort of shifting roles and responsibilities um, that are part of how we can live together better. Well, Priya, thank you so much. This book is, is small but mighty. It, it, I, I know it's going to be something that I turn to over and over again, just so I can think about what wells up in reading it. Thank you so much. It means so much to me to hear you say that, Evan. Author and essayist Priya Basel is the co-founder of Authors for Peace, a political platform for artists and writers. We've been talking about her book, Be My Guest, Reflections on Food, Community, and the Meaning of Generosity. Coming up, an angler reconsiders his relationship with fishing. Stay with us. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled, this first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Good Food. Each summer, angler and writer Paul Greenberg reflects on fishing with his father, an activity he loved. He's also an advocate for the environment and seafood sustainability, forcing him to rethink one of his favorite father-child activities. Hi, Paul. Hey, Evan. How are you? I'm good. It's great to have you back. Great to be here. 
Could you share with us some of your earliest memories of fishing with your father? Sure, yeah. I mean, my dad was a kind of classic 70s-era divorcee. When he suddenly found himself with children on his hand on a weekend, not knowing what the heck to do with us, he found fishing. And I think, I, as I wrote um, in my piece in Medium, he fell upon fishing like a, a man in the desert upon an oasis. Because <laughs> suddenly, here was this opportunity to burn five to eight hours on the sea. We started fishing quite a bit on what are called party boats here in Long Island. Um, I think on the West Coast, they call them maybe open boats. And we would go out in these very sort of kind of scrappy, dingy boats with pretty marginal people oftentimes aboard. My dad would often sit at the front of the boat and play poker on the hour or so ride to the grounds. And then, you know, we would find ourselves sitting next to each other fishing all day long and really running out of excuses not to talk to each other. So there was a lot of fishing, but there was a lot of talking, and we just shared a lot during those times. And how old were you when you first went out on the boat with him? Well, I think I must have been about six. I always remember when I was three, he took my brother out. I was too young. And I remember the boat coming in and my brother and my father at the front of the boat and my father signaling two, like two fish. And I was so angry and so obsessed with not being left behind the next time. And what did you usually end up doing with your catch? Well, so that was complicated. You know, when you fish, there is this moment. There's, of course, a lot of waiting in fishing and some days are much worse than others. But on the good days, you start catching with abandon. And the fish suddenly just seem to arrive from everywhere. And it kicks off some sort of kind of primordial instinct in you to just not stop. And so we would catch and catch and catch. And sometimes when we were going out for fish, like say Atlantic mackerel or bluefish, which are both can be very, very abundant. You catch a lot of them, 10, 20 fish, not uncommon. But at the same time, both mackerel and bluefish spoil very quickly. So it was not uncommon for us to waste our catch, I have to admit. Sometimes it would end up in the garden, sometimes it would go to the cat. We'd always eat some, but I was never properly planning for cooking my catch when I went out there. And, and you know, if I can fault my father for one thing in my fishing education, it was that there wasn't too much thought being put into what we would do with our catch after we caught it. Can you talk a little bit about how this activity of fishing is more than just about learning the basics of casting a rod and hooking bait for kids? Yeah, you know, for me, fishing is this unique way of kind of stepping into an ecosystem. There are a lot of people, of course, who just like to watch birds or count trees. But when you're fishing, you are a predator and you're a predator at the top of the food chain. And in order to be a predator, you have to be highly, highly observant. You have to understand where in the course of a tide cycle fish are most apt to bite. You have to understand how a fish sees the world, why a sunset or a sunrise causes predators to have an advantage over prey and that they're able to kind of find out prey fish in a way in those lighting situations that are not the typical lighting situations. I guess I think more than anything else, you start to understand the sort of energistics of prey-predator relationships. A predator often tries to expend as little energy as possible in accruing the biggest prey possible. So when you kind of get that predator-prey equation into your mind, you try to decode it in a number of different situations. 
understanding the way that fish pursue your lure or your bait is a key, key window into the way ecosystems work. How has the act of fishing itself changed from sort of the Mark Twain, Huck Finn times of a rusty hook on a knotted line to now? Yeah, I mean, it really has changed quite a bit. I mean, I can remember being in a semi-huck fin situation when I first started fishing. Actually, I think my very first fishing experience on my own with a friend is we had bobby pins, yarn, and Gainsburgers that we threw into a pond. So that was really, really, really low tech. But, you know, in the last 40 to 50 years, there have been incredible advances in fishing technology. So sonar has gotten more and more specific in its ability to find where fish are. They're called fish finders, but they're actually very, very specific kinds of sonar that actually allow you to locate even an individual fish. So right there and then you have this kind of decloaking of this mysterious world, which gives you really an unfair advantage. There are all sorts of other technologies. There's a kind of line now called fluorocarbon. Scientists have looked at the vision of fish and understood how to create a line that is essentially invisible to a fish's eye. So overall, the deck is really stacked against fish. And yet, at the same time, we still maintain this kind of primitive huck fin sense in our minds that, oh, I'm just a guy with a hook out there. But really, when you look at the numbers out there, there are many fisheries today where sport fishermen actually kill more fish than commercial fishermen in the same bioregion. Can you talk about trophy fish and their importance to endurance of species? Well, you know, I think we have this obsession as humans with catching a really, really big fish. Those fish actually turn out to be critical to a species survival. There's a funny quasi-biological term called a boff, and boff stands for a big old fat female fish. And boffs turn out to not only produce many, many more eggs than younger, smaller fish, those eggs actually turn out to be substantially more viable and more likely to hatch. And so when you catch trophy fish and take them out of the spawning population, you're not just removing one more breeder from the population, you're removing a major breeder, a major contributor. Sport fishermen who specifically target and kill those boffs, those trophy fish, are doing a kind of multiplier effect damage on a stock. So are there no regulations in place to protect those fish? Well, increasingly there are. There weren't when I was a kid. We've started to see I want to say the last 30 years what are called slot limits. And slot limits mean that you're not allowed to catch fish below a certain size because you want to have every fish have an opportunity to spawn at least once. But on top of it, you're now not allowed to catch fish above a certain size. I'm not a great fan of catch and release fishing, and I know that's somewhat controversial. And why is that? Well, I think that it is justifiable to go out and hunt something and kill it and eat it as long as you're going to eat the whole thing. But going out for a full day and catching and releasing and catching and releasing is frankly just torture. You know, a lot of anglers, when they speak about sport fish that they fought, they'll say things, well, I let him go to fight another day. And it makes it seem as if the sport fish in question is like, uh, equivalent in its desires and its life plan, when really it's not the case. You know, you have this animal that's swimming free. It has no idea 
uh, what a human is doing out there. Suddenly, it's got a hook impaled in its jaw. It's fighting hard like crazy, fighting for its life, in fact. And then it gets brought aboard. It gets pulled out of the water. It gets touched. When you touch a fish's mucous membrane, you're quite likely to spread an infection and compromise its ability to survive. It gets held up to the light. Oftentimes, eyes are damaged by exposure to direct sunlight. And then it gets thrown back. Somewhere around 20-30% of the fish that are released will go on to die. So I don't really understand and I don't really see the moral justification in doing that. Can you talk about the notion of quiet observation and perhaps a better alternative to catch and release? Yeah, I mean, so you've caught this fish, right? And say you've, you've killed and you're done. I think it takes a bigger mind and a bigger heart and maybe more caution on the part of parents to teach their children this. But what about taking a moment to understand, geez, what was the ecosystem that produced this big, beautiful fish for me? There is real value in just pausing and looking and watching and considering. Do you have children? I do. I have a daughter who lives over in Scotland and is a doctor, and I have a son who's here in New York and 15, and I fished with both of them and really enjoyed my time fishing with them. Well, it was a wonderful essay and an even better conversation. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you so much, Evan. Great to be back on the show. Paul Greenberg is the author of multiple books, including Four Fish, The Omega Principle, and The Climate Diet. We've been discussing the evolution of recreational fishing in our ever-changing world. Individual responsibility is important. But we need community to create real change on a larger scale. I've been fascinated by the concept of rights of nature. Should water itself have rights? Do rivers and lakes have rights? What about the fish that swim in them? And what about whole ecosystems? Thomas Lindsay is Senior Legal Counsel at the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights. And he wants us to look at water from a different point of view the point of view of the water itself. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm really happy to have this conversation with you. I've been looking forward to it. Tell us about the work that you do with the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights. Sure. So uh, so we work globally and in the United States to advance uh, what's become known as the rights of nature. So this concept that uh, waterways and mountains and forests should have legally enforceable rights, that people can step into the shoes of those ecosystems to litigate those rights. And the, the work started back in 2006 in small communities in Pennsylvania, uh, most notably a little place called Tamaqua Borough, just uh, northwest of Philadelphia, which had an issue with uh, some uh, toxic dumping that was happening in the community and people in the community decided to become the first place in the world to adopt a local law that recognized legally enforceable rights of ecosystems. And specifically in this case, the little Schuylkill river, which is one of the drinking water sources for the city of Philadelphia and other waterways within the municipality. But the, the basic understanding here is that our environmental laws have failed the environmental regulatory system has failed for a number of different reasons, but people are looking for a new approach. And the new approach seems to be one based on 
you know, whether it's prior people's movements of women and African-Americans becoming persons under our constitutional structure or from a, a more perhaps straightforward, logical reasoning standpoint of the fact that uh, major ecosystems are dying off around the world and that we need to do something different rather than just regulating how much we use those resources, but instead recognizing that ecosystems and nature have rights of their own. Why turn to litigation as a form of activism? So litigation really comes to us. <laughs> in, in other words, uh, rarely is litigation provoked uh, uh, unilaterally or preemptively by these laws. What you have is about three dozen communities in the United States who have passed these local ordinances or local laws recognizing legally enforceable rights of ecosystems. What usually happens either before or after those laws are passed is that corporations that would be affected by those legally enforceable rights. So think fracking corporations that now have water resources off limits to them uh, for use or housing development corporations uh, that now have major tracts of land uh, that can't be used because of these legally enforceable rights of ecosystems that generally those corporations pick fights with the municipalities, the cities, towns, villages, and counties that have been passing these types of laws. And I think we're kind of, you know, pardon the, the pun, but we're kind of at a watershed moment in the U S and around the world with understanding that these ecological limitations are going to begin and have begun to constrain the ways that we use the environment for economic activity and those types of things. And I think there was a, a seminal moment last year in November of 2020 when uh, people in Orange County, Florida, so the 30th largest county in the United States, one and a half million people live in Orange County, uh, that the voters of Orange County approved a, a local law in Orange County that recognized waterways as having legal, legally enforceable rights to exist, be free of pollution, maintain a healthy ecosystem, right to flow, these types of things that have been included in uh, these types of laws over the past 20 years. But in doing so, in Orange County, voters adopted that initiative by a 90% vote. And now, just a couple months ago, a lawsuit was filed uh, on the basis of that Orange County law against a housing developer that was wants to put in a 1,900-acre development that would fill in about 130 acres of wetlands, which are protected by this Orange County law. And the Orange County law, of course, recognizes the rights of ecosystem to exist. This housing developer is going to actually destroy these wetlands. And so it's very clear that it's in conflict with this local law that's been passed. Will there ever come a point where there are lawsuits or lawsuits taken on behalf of the existence of humanity? I feel like these right to nature laws are kind of proxy battles for what humans actually need to survive. And given that heretofore we've relied on a very divisive political system to put in place regulation that, as you mentioned earlier, isn't often successfully enforced, what are people to do aside from go this route? 
So I think there are two different, you know, two different rights that we're talking about. One is a, a right of humans to use the natural environment. And the other set of rights are the rights of the environment itself. And I think over the past 10 years kind of come into vogue a little bit about right, a right to environment. And I think the preposition is very important here, right to versus right of. And so the work that's being done in Florida, which has really become the epicenter of rights of nature lawmaking, is really about both. It's about a a right to clean water for people because there's a human right embedded in these laws as well. Uh, in addition to the rights of the waterways to a certain kind of protection. So they're an understanding that people are a part of nature and that there are human rights involved as well as these rights of nature laws. And I think very much so a lot of people have come to an understanding that their right to use the environment uh, or their right to use the environment, which is regulated by state environmental agencies or government, has not been enough to actually protect the natural environment. You know, the the numbers are pretty stark. Today, across the United States, even 50 years after the Clean Water Act was passed, 60% of waterways still don't even meet the minimum clean water standards that are founded within the Federal Clean Water Act. And there are a number of reasons for that, including that, you know, the regulated industries, the corporations are generally the ones that are writing the regulations or the laws in the first place. So it should come as no surprise that that kind of environmental protection has fallen flat, fallen short of of what we need to be doing. And in fact, that doesn't even touch on the elephant in the room, which is climate change uh, and these huge global environmental disasters that are beginning to unfold. So the question is, do we stick on this Western system of law that we have, which basically sees nature as a thing to be used for humans? Or do we need to switch to a more indigenous uh, kind of tribal set of cultural values in which indigenous peoples, uh, First Nations, have always seen nature as something other than property uh, to be used, that nature is a living thing or an animated thing. So you have, you know, like the Yurok tribe in Northern California or the White Earth Band of Ojibwe, the Chippewa in Minnesota, who talk about nature as being a living thing, uh, a being a person, a relative. And our laws very clearly are stuck in that Western system of law right now. What the, the law has to go through a transformation and that evolution or transformation has to be shifting from nature as a thing to nature as an animated entity capable of, of holding rights. And that's a huge transition to make. But people who have come to these conclusions are acting through their local governments to get laws passed, like in the city of Pittsburgh, the country of Ecuador back in 2008, helped the Ecuadorian Constitutional Assembly to write these rights of nature principles into the new federal or national constitution for the country of Ecuador. And there have now been about 60 enforcement cases brought under those provisions in Ecuador, that these laws are a new kind of Polaroid photo of this transformation that's taking place between this Western system of law, which is really anchored in destruction of the planet and a new system of law, which is really anchored in this indigenous understanding of nature. And until we make that switch, we're kind of screwed. I mean, it's it's just a question of watching things unfold, the snowballs rolling down the hill, whether it's drought in California 
whether it's the fires that are happening right now in Oregon and Washington State. I mean, all of this is going to get worse uh, unless we begin to transform ourselves so that we understand that nature and ecosystems have to be treated as other than just a thing to be used by humans. Does the fact that corporations themselves were granted a kind of personhood and rights almost as a personhood make it more difficult to litigate these cases? It, it does and it doesn't. It makes it easier from a perspective of talking about it because some of the code words, you know, the phrases used in these campaigns have been, you know, corporations have rights. Why shouldn't nature have rights? On the flip side of that is the problem that takes shape as you move into the courts because corporations have Fifth Amendment rights under the U.S. Constitution, which says that their property can't be taken from them without just compensation. That's what the Fifth Amendment says. And because corporations are persons, they can avail themselves of those Fifth Amendment protections. The problem is under our system of law, if nature is property and a corporation owns that property, then technically any law that you pass at the local, state, or federal level that interferes with those corporate constitutional rights can be invalidated. So litigation takes money, but we know it also takes time. And is there enough time for our planet? Well, it depends on who you ask. First off, uh, we already do litigation in environmental affairs. An immense amount of money and time and resources is expended litigating the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. I spent 10 years litigating federal environmental laws on behalf of rural communities that were trying to protect their natural environment. And the conclusion we came to was that, the, as weird as it sounds, the environmental laws in the United States are not really written to actually protect the environment. They're about shaving some rough edges off when a project is proposed for a community, but they have nothing to do with allowing the community to actually say no to the project coming in or actually putting nature in a position where the protection of nature is the overriding interest. So in a lot of these laws, you see requirements to do X, Y, and Z whenever reasonably practicable or economically feasible. There's all these killer words that are thrown into these laws and regulations that make them less effective than they need to be. So currently we spend a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of resources on these dead-end environmental enforcement actions that in the end don't produce much of anything at all. So what we're calling for is a rededication, a kind of transition towards doing litigation that matters with the existing resources that have been sucked into these almost endless environmental lawsuits over the past 40 years that haven't really uh, changed the trajectory of where we're headed in terms of climate change or these major environmental issues. And the second thing is, uh, do we have time to go through that? Well, the rights of nature laws really accelerate the timeline and allow municipalities to integrate rights of nature laws into their policies, which is an immediate thing, not a long-term thing. So the Blue Mountains Council in Australia, uh, another council in Northern Ireland recently passed the first rights of nature resolutions in their particular areas, which call for and require rights of nature principles to be incorporated into city planning, uh, into land use plans, into policies, into long-term strategic planning, into everything. And so I think that's a whole new front 
not just recognizing the legal rights of nature and then going to court with those, but also taking rights of nature as less of a 30,000 foot thing and actually beginning to incorporate it real time into policies and other things that cities and our municipalities do. So I think a combination of the two uh, have to be accelerated, but because uh, we're in a crisis situation now in terms of the natural environment. But those are the kinds of tools that I think that are going to bridge us into this next cultural era where we treat nature less as property and more as a, as a rights-bearing entity. Thank you so much. So much to think about. Thanks for having us. That's environmental lawyer Thomas Lindsay. His cutting-edge work with the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights focuses on enacting change to save the planet. For what you can do locally, check out his book, Be the Change, How to Get What You Want in Your Community. In a minute, when a journalist hit rock bottom, she discovered the healing powers of nature and set out to investigate the science behind it. We explore the psychological benefit of a walk under the trees when Good Food continues. You're listening to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. Nature is a balm, but why does it make us feel so good? How does it affect human mental health? And how can it ameliorate psychological pain? In a deeply personal story, journalist Lucy Jones explores the scientific evidence and therapeutic connectedness achieved by putting your hands in the soil, swinging from branches, and getting to the roots of ourselves. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Evan. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's just such a marvelous and thought-provoking read. You have a personal story about connecting with the natural world. I, I would love to begin there and have you also explain the terms extinction of experience and nature deficit disorder? So about 10 years ago, I was living in London, a pretty kind of urban lifestyle. I was writing, I was, a, I was a, working as a journalist and I barely saw the outdoors, mostly spending my time kind of in, in pubs and clubs and so on. And when I was a, around 27, my dependence on alcohol and drugs brought me to, to my knees and the related depression and anxiety kind of got to a point of real crisis. I went into recovery and I was seeing a psychiatrist, a psychotherapist, but there was one aspect of my recovery and, and healing which felt kind of mysterious so I knew how psychiatry worked, psychotherapy and the support groups I was attending. But I found that going walking in Walthamstow Marshes, which is a huge open marshland in East London, daily became just as important as those kind of conventional therapies. At the time, I, I was newly sober. I felt extremely raw. I felt kind of like I didn't have any skin. I was very sensitive and I would go to this marshland and just spend time with the trees and, and watch birds and listen out for waterfalls and, and insects and so on. And afterwards, my brain would feel um, kind of soothed and calmed and the angry, negative, kind of self-critical thoughts would be hushed. 
And so I set out on a journey to kind of investigate the mechanisms and find out what was going on. The extinction of experience, it's a, it's a really helpful phrase, I think, coined by Robert Pyle, the American writer and uh, lepidopterist. It describes the winnowing and tapering of our connection with the rest of the living world. For example, my grandmothers, one's in England, one's in Scotland, they had this kind of inherent lexicon of 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 the natural world. They knew the names of wildflowers, butterflies, they know the timings of the seasons, you know, when the migrating birds will come in and so on. My parents also know quite a lot of names of 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 species and so on. I know maybe 5 to 10% of of what they know, although I'm I'm working on that. And that kind of describes what's happening alongside our move indoors. So we spend in the global north between 95 and 99% of our time inside. And of course, one of the results of that is that we, uh, our experiences are lessened outdoors, but also our, our sense of knowing and our sense of kind of kinship and connection with other species. Nature deficit disorder is a term coined by Richard Louvre. And it's a kind of useful heuristic to describe what we are losing, what we are missing out of on in our nature depleted worlds. It's estrangement, our great estrangement from the natural world. There's another aspect I would love if you could speak about, and that is biophilia, which to me seems like such a no-brainer. We we act like our bodies are armored off from nature, even though we're a product of millions of years of evolution in nature and alongside it. Why do you think it's so hard for people to acknowledge that we have this deep biological need for nature? Why don't we want to fight hard for it? That's a great and big question. So biophilia is a term made famous by E.O. Wilson, the American biologist, and it means the innate affiliation humans have with living things, a kind of inherent attraction and appeal we have towards other species. So that could be anything from wanting to climb trees or go hiking or surfing or or being being in natural environments to putting a screensaver of beautiful flowers on your computer or your laptop or bringing a tree in for Christmas. You also pose the question that if biophilia is subdued, does it even matter? Can you miss what you never knew, which just seems incredibly grim to me? Yeah, I mean that's that's a kind of question that terrifies me too. But what uh, writing Losing Eden convinced me of was the unequivocal evidence base now that we need nature for our mental health, our, our physical health, and our well-being. It's not something we can do without. It's not a self-indulgence or a luxury or a, a frill or a kind of optional add-on. It's 
it's something that human beings need in order to recover and restore themselves from the stresses of life. I think one one example in the evidence is really was really clear on that, which is um, this this phrase "background nature." So that uh, refers to tree-lined avenues, areas of um, human dwellings where there's kind of nature in the background. And the studies on those areas show that there is a huge impact on population mental health. And that means that even people who don't kind of love the natural world or want to go tree climbing on the weekend, just the presence of street trees, the presence of nature where they live is incredibly important for their for their mental health and that that makes me believe that you know whether you like nature or not you still need it and we need to design our cities and towns in a way that incorporates um nature how do shapes in nature and a simple walk for example affect the brain this is one of my favorite um parts of evidence how fractal shapes affect the brain so fractal shapes are found all over the place in nature, uh, leaves of trees, um, lightning, salt flats, fractal bro- broccoli. They're the same shape which repeats in different sizes. A scientist called Richard Taylor found that the particular dimension of fractal shapes found in nature activates areas of our brains associated with calmness and, and relaxation and can help us recover from stress. And you can see these fractal shapes even in kind of weeds poking up through um, cracks in the pavement and so on. So if you're if you're taking a walk and you you have trees around you with fractal leaves or kind of sprays of plants, take a moment just to to stand and and pay attention and notice them. You know it could be having a therapeutic effect on your on your brain. You talk about how several studies report that a lack of access to nature and discrimination in public parks have lasting effects. And conversely, green neighborhoods can reduce the health gap between rich and poor. Can you talk about that correlation? I think this was perhaps the most important area of the evidence that I I wrote about. A scientist called... um, Richard Mitchell was studying a community in the north of England and found that even though they were poor and disadvantaged, their health and well-being was better than expected. And the reason for that was that they had access to to nature and green space and so on, which led the study group to conclude that nature could be equigenetic, as that's the name for um, a factor which can lessen that those health inequalities and that gap between rich and poor. Even children as well, there's a really interesting and important study which find, found that children from disadvantaged backgrounds, if they have um, nature near them in their childhoods, it can act as a buffer against stress. That's journalist Lucy Jones. Her book is Losing Eden. We've been discussing how a return to the natural world aids both the body and the mind. Do you love what you hear on Good Food? 
If you subscribe to the show, you'll never miss an episode. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, and click follow. That way, you'll be the first to know when next week's annual cookbook episode goes live. We've got gift recommendations for every cook in your life and interviews with some of our favorite cookbook authors. Follow Good Food wherever you listen to your podcasts. When we return, we head underground to explore the mycelial networks underneath our feet. Stay with us. I'm Evan Kleiman, and this is Good Food. We've done countless interviews about the fascinating world of fungi over the years. We've talked to foragers, cooks, writers, and scientists who have all fallen under their spell. But no one quite captures the wonder of mushrooms like Louis Schwartzberg. Using his own cutting-edge time-lapse technology, the documentary filmmaker captures a story of rebirth, rejuvenation, and regeneration in his film, Fantastic Fungi. The film opens with noted mycologist Paul Stamets laying on the forest floor, and from there we go on an 80-minute journey that started nearly 90 million years ago. Hi, Louis. Hey, it's good to be with you. It's great to have you. Um... In the movie, Michael Pollan claims mushrooms, quote, don't give a unquote. <laughs> How are they the ultimate omnivore's dilemma? Well, because they can heal you, they can feed you, they can kill you. So um, you have to kind of think about what you're about to eat when it comes to mushrooms. And, um, you know, cows eat grass and... You know, monkeys might eat fruit. They don't have to think about it, but we do. And um, that's why I think there's such powerful foods or species because something that can, you know, heal you, feed you, shift your consciousness, and even kill you has power. Mushrooms are described as the digestive tract of the forest. How are we, humans, descendants of mycelium? Well, we, dis we are descendants from mycelium because if you go back a couple of billion years, mycelium and fungi were here on the planet, you know, decomposing um, rock to create soil. And plants need soil in order to, to grow. Plants can take sunlight, turn it, you know, convert sunlight energy into food. Well, the mycelium, the fungi, they live underground and they do what we do. They have external stomachs where they, they eat organic matter to, and with enzymes break it down and absorb it. And we have internal stomachs. But genetically, our DNA is more closely related to fungi than it is to plants. It's one of the reasons why, for example, penicillin has saved more human lives than any other medicine in the history of mankind, is that the viruses that they combat are the same viruses that we have to fight in order to stay alive. And you being a, a, a expert in food, I'm sure you know that fungi live in your gut. And without fungi in your gut, you would not be able to digest food. And every time you take antibiotics, you have to replenish that garden in your gut so that you can absorb food, digest food, and break down food. So it's a beautiful symbiotic relationship. What do mushrooms have in common with cheese and wine? 
So mushrooms um, are the, what they have in common with, with the foods you, you just mentioned is they help with fermentation. They're helping to break things down, to convert them. So, you know, the, the fungi are starting that process of decomposition, changing the grape juice into wine. And then at some point we, I guess, stop that process and we, we drink it and we enjoy it. They make the food we need. I mean, without the fermented foods in our diet, we would have a hard time digesting food. Um, so beer, wine, cheese, all are product of fungi creating a, a chemical reaction that's creating this, this cycle of life. You know, is, are things, it's kind of interesting to think about, is it the end of life or the beginning of life where fungi play a role? It could be the beginning of life because until you break organic matter down into their basic components, their basic molecules, that's when plants can absorb them and create food out of them. So it could be the beginning of life as opposed to the end of life. But aren't the end and the beginning the same? It is. It's a circle. You're totally right. Let's talk about the photography, which is absolutely just stunning. The film is like a masterclass in time lapse. Mm. How long did it take to get some of these shots? The the decaying mouse, for instance, or <laughs> yeah, that was a beautiful shot, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, well, decaying mouse would be. I'm trying to remember now. Probably five or six weeks. And it's a great shot of the mouse just like, you know, being disassembling itself and then grass growing. I've been pioneering time-lapse since like 1972. And I've had cameras running almost nonstop, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for four decades. And I've squeezed 40 years into about 20 hours of film, which is pretty remarkable. And the reason why I do it is because time is your most precious asset. And it just takes time to watch a flower open, a mushroom grow, or a mouse decompose. But it's a window into a portal of the universe that the human eye can't see. And I think what's powerful about that is that it opens your, your mind, your heart, your consciousness into the reality that there are many different, you know, forms of of metabolic rates, of many different, you know, portals of life that we are unaware of. And so everything from like the slow time lapse of imagine a redwood tree that would take 500 years to grow to slow motion of a, of a flea that might take two days of life. There are all these different windows of life that we aren't aware of. And we think that the human point of view of life is the only view. And when you realize that every living thing has its own time frame, its own way of, of dancing in, in the universe, then it engenders, I think, compassion and gratitude and appreciation for all living things. In, in 2011, um, your film Wings of Life came out, which is all about mm -hmm. pollinators and yes. is narrated by Meryl Streep. How has the technology progressed since then? Well, in terms of time-lapse, you know, it hasn't really changed a lot. And there's a lot of time-lapse flowers in, in Wings of Life. But, you know, it's kind of remarkable. I feel like I'm telling the same story over and over. Because with Wings of Life, 
it's a portal into that beautiful intersection between the animal world and the plant world. You know, bee and a flower, where the bee, you know, needs pollen and nectar in order to feed its brood, its children. And, and in the process of doing that, it deposits pollen on that flower from other flowers, which then the flower becomes fertilized. And then we become the beneficiaries of this incredible fruit, nuts, and vegetables that enables us to have a healthy diet and, and a long life. And so pollination is like one portal into the mystery or into the unveiling the mystery of nature. And then the mushrooms and the fungi world is just another portal into understanding these kind of incredible symbiotic relationships that are microscopic, that make the world go round. That's filmmaker Louis Schwartzberg, his beautiful film, which would be a wonderful way to spend an hour and a half this weekend, is Fantastic Fungi. If you missed any of today's show, listen at kcrw.com slash goodfood or on KCRW's mobile app. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Elena Shatkin, Desmond Taylor, Nick Lamponi, and PJ Shahamat. And special thanks to Chrissy Van Meter, Laura Kondarajan, and Gary Masiha. Take a walk in the woods this weekend. Find a pomegranate and marvel at the seeds inside. And while you're doing it, listen to old episodes of Good Food. They're all at kcrw.com slash goodfood. I'm Evan Kleiman. And of course, I'm going to meet you back here next week with our annual cookbook roundup on good food. Just my imagination.